Lord God and Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord God, that we have the living word, Jesus Christ, uh, the advent of whom we celebrate later this week. But thank you, Lord God, also that you've given us the written word, your word, that we are able in this country, particularly, Lord, to have freely before us so that we can read it and study it and let its words uh, engage us and transform us through uh, engaging the Word and also the Holy Spirit to really be changed human beings, to become uh, much more than what we were when we first found you. Almighty God, I pray you just help us uh, to study this over the next uh, little time. And Lord, I pray you'd help me and that the words of my mouth may be acceptable to you. And Lord, the contemplations of all of us Lord, in our minds may be very acceptable to you, Lord, and enrich us all. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we had something uh, that you don't hear very often in churches. Uh, just a little while ago, we had the reading of the Word of God, but that's quite common in churches, hopefully. But what was very unusual is uh, the reader said, now please turn to this, it's in page one of the Bible. Well, you don't often hear that in churches, do we? Um, page one. It's almost like you think, I didn't know there was a page one, <laughs> because it's usually in the thousands, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But uh, page one is, of course, the very beginning, not of the Bible, but describes the beginning of the universe and some very important things that have happened there. Uh, we, often when people go off to study the Bible, if they pick, they go to college to study the Bible, we say, oh, they're going to study theology. That is, the you know, theology means the study of God. What also the Bible though contains is a whole study of a whole lot of other things, and most particularly a study of humans. So it's also what might be called an anthropology, that is the study of human beings, an anthropology. And I think sometimes we should also be very conscious of the fact that it tells us an awful lot about us uh, as well as creatures of God, as well as it does about God. And through that we can see... Um, uh, by knowing ourselves and knowing God, we can then look at how the relationship between the two of us should be built. Often I think uh, we, the age-old question is, uh, who am I, what am I, what am I here for, where am I going? And I know I, I started thinking about that when I was about eight years old. I can remember at the time I went out in the back porch of my house and looked up and saw all these stars. It must be a very clear night. I suddenly noticed how there were so many, and I thought, there's so many and they're so far off, and who am I, this speck in this great, huge expanse of the universe? And from that time on, I've, I've been puzzling over that very thing until I met the Lord Jesus Christ, and I then started to realise exactly who I was and also where I'm going. It's often said that man's pride is the root of many of his problems. And of course also we find this in the Bible that describes uh, man's pride and the consequences of that quite, quite a bit. For instance in Proverbs 16 it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Psalm 10 it says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. So a pride, a man filled with pride... He's got no room for God, which of course is a very sad thing. But it's very true, I think, if we examine our own lives and know that throughout our lives and throughout the, the, the 
our existence. We've, we've seen so much of what pride can do to people. It also says though in Isaiah, if you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Now this is talking about uh, Lucifer actually, but it's, it's also implying there that this is the source of man's pride. The pride of Lucifer is the source of man's pride. And Isaiah says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And listen to this, I will be like the Most High. In other words, he wants to set himself up as God. And we will even see that in humans, that we, if we dis- disregard God and we cast God right out of our thinking and our lives, then we are really setting ourselves up as our own God, are we not? This pride is very pervasive amongst human beings. But you know, uh, from my own experience, and uh, I've talked with this with my wife Maria quite often through because we've worked in healthcare, and so many times we've seen the source of people's problems. On one hand, it's pride, but on the other hand, it's actually a very, very poor self-image. So many times when you uh, talk to people who are in trouble, particularly if they're in mental trouble, emotional trouble, at the heart of the matter is they have a very, very poor image of themselves. So we need to get this all in perspective. Yes, there is the prideful side of man, but there is also something else going on in man. We are very much a a divided entity. We have what's called, uh, what philosophers like to call a dialectical that is, a dialectical is a, the idea of two competing forces uh, against each other, which hopefully, if resolved, will bring a new thing out of them. And we are very much this dialectical entity. We have two sides to us, in a way, just like the coin does. It has the, has the side which is, has the owner's uh, image stamped upon it, but has the other side as well. And that is part of big part of our problem. I think we need to just see exactly who we are. Self-image is, is a very important thing because, let's face it, if you think carefully about it, our consciousness is really all that we know of. Um, now, I've been around for 65 years now, and in those 65 years, all that I've really known uh, intim- intimately has been my own self-conscious. I don't know what it's like to be any of you, for instance. I haven't experienced that. But I've experienced myself, all my waking moments, and certainly been my sleeping moments as well, but certainly all my waking moments where I've, I've actually been conscious of myself and, and, yes indeed, reflected upon myself and my existence. So each one of us, in a way, is, is locked in our own, our own self-conscious existence. Well, look, it's a... Uh, just to demonstrate, I suppose, the, uh, this contradiction or this uh, dialectic, this uh, uh, dual nature of uh, humanity, we only look, need to look at the last century, the 20th century. Uh, 20th century was uh, a century of great technological um, and knowledge growth where uh, it surpassed everything that has been achieved in the entirety of the world before. The 20th century brought so much, and so much good in sense, sense of uh, healthcare and technological aid to us. Um, and 
all sorts of things that we can point to and say, this is, wow, this is what man can do. But also the, the 20th century was the most deadly century. Even though we were able to overcome the death caused by germs, by the discovery of penicillin and other uh, antibiotics, we also have to face the fact that the 20th century was the most deadly century. In the 20th century, more people were killed by warfare than in all of humanity, uh, the time of humanity's existence ever before. More people were killed in the 20th century. Something, well, no one really knows. This is the, the tragedy of it because we can't even put a, an exact figure on it. But something like up to about between 60 and 80 million people were killed in the 20th century by direct result of warfare. And even more tragic is that perhaps, no, again, no one's really sure of the figures, but perhaps a hundred thousand uh, sorry, a hundred million people, a hundred million people were murdered by their own governments. <laughs> so we can see that humans have a great dialectic, do they not? A great contradiction within their existence. We're able to achieve great things. We put a man on the moon, that's a common thing we say, gee, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't stop killing each other. Well, that's part of the, uh, the contradictory nature in which we live. And it goes back to I think we need to re-examine our origins. So in terms of the image that we're talking about, uh, the image of uh, our self-image and how we view uh, the others of our, our race, we need to look at how the image was created. And we had it here in Genesis, uh, yes, page 1 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and uh, starting about the 20th uh, verse. And God goes through there, if you, want to, if you want to read along, you can. I, I won't read it all through, but it's important to note that what we heard this morning from God's Word is in the context of God creating the entire universe. Remember, the universe means everything. <laughs> we don't have to say the universe and everything in it because the universe is everything and includes everything that's in it. But God created this out of nothing. He didn't make it out of uh, things that already existed. He made it out, if you, if you like to put a, a human slant on it or a human way of saying it, he made it out of the imagination of his own heart. And he brought it into existence by the power of his sovereign will. It, he wanted it to be so, and it was so. It became so. And I suppose we could say, well, God could have done, uh, brought all this in existence in the, you know, the, the clicking of a finger, so to speak. But he does it in such a way, it's presented to us here in such a way uh, that it shows a certain way of putting things in their place. First of all, for instance, in the first three chapters of uh, Genesis, God creates the substance of the universe, the, the stuff, if you like, of the universe, or as the Bible calls it, the dust of the universe. That is all the things that we know that we now call chemicals and they're, they're put together into um, molecules and they build up and so on. God created those things, the stuff of the universe. It's like building a house, but it's empty. So God first builds a house, but leaves it empty for only a little while because then he sees it and he wants to fill this house up. He wants to fill this universe with living things. And first off, he creates... A, uh, a lot of living things in the in uh, the chapter uh, the first uh, sorry the first uh, chapter but in in the, uh, the third day that's described he creates things that are living but they're really just a 
um, extension, a more uh, sophisticated or complex extension of the, the matter of the universe anyway. These are the things that uh, we know, uh, God tells us here that he made uh, grasses and herbs and trees. Now veg vegetables are living things. They have within them the, uh, the, the full uh, machinery of uh, replicating themselves and growing. Uh, so we can call them living things. They, um, though they do not have a consciousness, uh, they are really just a, a more complex arrangement, as it were, of the stuff of the universe that God has put together. Then he goes on to make a whole lot of uh, creatures that move about. And it even uses the word, a lovely word here, uh, in the English, uh, uh, the word teeming. Uh, it says here that uh, God made the creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water's, water teems. You can imagine these things moving around. Have you ever seen a school of fish? You know exactly what teeming means. They're moving around. So there's that movement there. So it's introduced here in uh, the uh, fourth day of creation. There's introduced here the idea of things that move around as well. And then it goes on, of course, to talk about uh, other creatures and finally gets to us on the sixth day of creation, talks about uh, creating man. And here's the important thing. We've, we've, I'll just repeat it because I think it's so important and it's probably might be something we skip by sometimes. We just sort of take it a bit for granted. And I think it's something that's worthwhile always trying to uh, remember and perhaps uh, revisit and study. Uh, in uh, verse 26 of chapter 1 it says, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Here we have uh, a new thing occurring. These things that uh, are, are made on the, the uh, days uh, 4, 5 and 6 all have what's in the Hebrew is called nephesh. That is, it says that God breathed into them. Nephesh means... Um, uh, nefesh means the uh, breath. It doesn't mean necessary breath in the same uh, way that we mean the air coming in and out of our lungs. It really can also translate it elsewhere in the Bible as meaning the soul of things, the soul of living things, nefesh. Um, but this is the breath of life. So God is taking these things that are made of the stuff of the universe, but he's doing something extra to them. He's actually breathing into them, as it were, as it describes it here, breathing into them this life. So they have life put into them, which is different uh, to just the, the trees and the grasses and the, the herbs. Uh, they now have life that's breathed into them. And elsewhere in the Bible it says, by the way, which is rather, rather natty for the, they, the, you people who are interested in a bit of biology, it says that the life is in the blood. And it's interesting that life, uh, I'm sorry, blood and uh, breath, of course, go together. You can't, it's no point in a person breathing or any creature breathing if they don't have blood to, to, to circulate the, uh, the oxygen uh, around their body. Uh, and it's no use having a beating heart and blood coursing around if you're not breathing. The two go together. So this is sort of a, uh, a characteristic of this new type of living thing that God has created. 
So there's different, a whole lot of different ways of uh, categorizing living things. And the modern one we use is, was uh, first created by Carus uh, uh, Linnaeus. And Carus Linnaeus, by the way, was actually a, a Bible-believing uh, Christian. He believed in the Bible and he, he tried to follow that. And, but it's just an arbitrary way of categorizing uh, living things. Uh, it's mainly done by looking at similar structures within living things. But here the Bible actually gives us a different categorization. There is one broad categorization there. If you read those uh, first, uh, those that first few uh, verses there of, the, of chapter uh, one of uh, Genesis, you get through right up until about uh, chapter 27. You'll see that there is one way of categorizing uh, the creatures is, is by their habitat. We have sea creatures and we have creatures of belong on the land and we have creatures that belong in the air. So if everyone, there's, there's, there's a, uh, people who are skeptical of the Bible will often point to the fact that the Bible says that, for instance, it must be wrong because the Bible says that bats, uh, it, they, they would say bats are birds and we all know bats aren't birds. But the Bible actually is talking about, when it's talking about birds, it's talking about creatures of the air, things that fly through the air. So it's talking about the habitat. There's another way of looking at it, of, of looking at life. Firstly, there is um, the, the, the way of looking at um, classifying life is that there is uh, those creatures that are just a, uh, a complex uh, extension of the stuff of the universe. There are those things that then have the, another category, is the breath of life put in them. And then we have a third category, and that is where it says those things that have the breath of life put in them, but they are created in the image of God. They have something about them that is in the image of God. So there's three categories there. There is actually a fourth category. I won't go into it. Um, it's referring to insects. It's a little bit technical and um, it doesn't help us in our discussion today. So I won't go into it. But um, uh, So there's three main categories there. And what is it then that makes us like God? Well, we can look at some of the characteristics of human beings and say that they are like, like God. There's three main ones. I call them the three C's. There's consciousness, but it's moral consciousness. In other words, humans are able to reflect upon in their consciousness, reflect upon themselves and, and come to a, a, a decision as to whether what they're doing is right or wrong. They have this sense of right or wrong within them. No other animal has this apparently and we certainly don't hold other animals uh, to account. We don't hold creatures to account. Uh, for instance, we know that dogs and, um, and uh, all sorts of animals, lions and, and sharks uh, attack, attack people and kill them or attack each other and kill them. But we don't hold them to account or we shouldn't do. We shouldn't hold them to account morally. But humans we do because humans have that moral consciousness. They have the ability to be able to reflect upon their life and make a decision as to whether it's right or wrong. Second characteristic of humans is communication. We're able to have a, I mean, I know other animals do communicate in their way with their chirps and their barks, and then, yes, just thinking of the dog next door this morning, the barks, they have a lot of barks, and uh, their meows and all the other noises that uh, creatures make. But humans have the ability to have abstract communication. We're able to talk about things that aren't in our immediate presence. We're able to even talk to each other about things that don't even exist yet. We can just consider them in our mind and propose it to each other and, and then consider it in the abstract. 
So we have that second uh, characteristic. And the third characteristic that we have is that we have what's called teleological creativity, but teleological creativity. Um, you could say that beavers, I think it was a show on TV last night about a beaver, and beavers are very creative. If you've seen them making a, a, um, a dam that they live in and they catch fish in and so on. But beavers do that according to instinct and it's the same over and over and over again. Every year they make the same dam in the same way. There's not much difference to it. But humans are able to conceive of something in their mind and then bring it into existence. And they can even pass that on through their abstract communication to someone else and say, look, this is what I think we should build. I'll draw you a picture of it. Let's go out and, and build this. So we can we have teleological creativity. So those are the three characteristics of human beings. Moral consciousness, abstract communication, and this teleological creativity, which God, of course, has. And we've seen that in what God's done. And he displays that just in this first chapter of Genesis. Put it in um, the words of uh, the American Bible commentator Henry Morris. He said, above all, we have the capacity for worshipping and loving God. So the divine image, what is the divine image that we have upon us? Well, those are the three characteristics that we can, we can describe. But the divine image in, in total is that we have the ability to engage in a full relationship with God and all that he is and in all that he has created. A full relationship with God. We are the only creature that is able to have that full loving relationship with God. So that is what makes us uh, the bearers of the divine image. The image, though, has been obscured. We look along further. If you, if you, uh, if you want to follow on page three, we turn to Genesis three, and it tells us about how the serpent come to the uh, woman in the garden and said, uh, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden?" Here we go. The same. Um, uh, Tactic is being used by uh, Satan forever and ever, and it's still used today. He doesn't vary in his tactic. He always gets people to doubt the word of God. Always the same. He gets you to doubt the word of God. He says, um, did God really say? Hmm? Perhaps you know, you've got that wrong. And then the poor woman, of course, turns around and she says, um, well, no, he... Uh, uh, he uh, did actually say that we could um, uh, uh, we, there's, have everything except there's one one tree in the middle of the garden, and um, you know God, uh, uh, poor woman, they actually got it a, a little bit wrong, uh, even in trying to uh, remember what God had said to her. But anyway, God goes, uh, the woman goes on and says, she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate. She gave to her husband who also waited. Then both their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God who was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the, the Lord God actually had to call out, Where are you? They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden and then he says, the man says to God, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, this doesn't sound like the loving relationship that man is able to have 
we don't usually hide from, and we're not usually afraid of and hide from people who we love and have a loving relationship with. So something has been fractured here. The image of uh, man, uh, which is the image of God upon man, is being obscured. It is now uh, spoilt. And God said uh, that uh, they would have to be banished from this garden of, uh, of Eden. Because he says, that very interesting, he says, he now knows good and evil and he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The implication being that he will become like an independent God himself. He'll live forever and have this knowledge, become like an independent God himself. There's a lot of names around that uh, we know off by heart, or everyone here would probably know who Abraham Lincoln is. If I said Adolf Hitler, um, I'm sure everyone would know who he was. But someone who should be just as famous as Adolf Hitler is someone called Gerhard Kreschmer. Now, probably no one's ever heard of Gerhard Kreschmer. If you're looking up, in, if you Google him, he will actually be come up on the Google. Gerhard Kreschmer. Gerhard Kreschmer, unfortunately, was the first person to be uh, killed in the Nazi German, um, the Nazi government of Germany's uh, euthanasia program. And this is a great example of w where we have now got an obscured image of ourselves and of our fellows. For we somehow feel free to be able to put people to death. Um, and it's not, when we think of um, the Nazi government, we think of some sort of aberration. That's a big mistake. Because euthanasia is very much part of our current culture. Uh, Gerhard Kreschmer was a little boy who was born with only one arm and one leg. He had convulsions and he was blind. Of course, and this was in the days, uh, about 20 years before uh, medications were invented that could control convulsions, for instance. Um, and so he would have been, yeah, he would have had a hard life and he would have been a, a hard child to, to rear. But you know that uh, Gerhard Kreschmer was, was killed when he was only five months old. He was the first to be put into the new uh, German government's plan to take away the burden of people themselves, for their families and for the nation by uh, killing them. I would say he was murdered. And he was murdered by people who uh, had forgotten to fear God. It's very sad. He was uh, the first of, it's thought, about 250,000 people who were murdered in uh, Nazi Germany under this program. People who had uh, who, who were thought to be have lives that weren't worth living. You know, look, the reason I say this is that bringing this up as an example of how we've obscured, obscured the image of, of what who man is, our own image and the image of those who are around us. We are made in the image of God. That is who's stamped upon us, the image of God, the, the almighty God. And yet we are capable of such uh, things towards ourselves and towards others. Baroness Mary Warnock is currently uh, an English educationalist and an ethicist, believe it or not, an ethicist who uh, who consults with the British government on issues of health care. And she originally uh, t 
talked about the need to ease the burden uh, of for those families and for those individuals and for society, she says, for the, well, she actually said the word state, for the, the burden on the state, of people who have dementia, elderly people who have dementia. This is a person who's this day consulting the British government on eth ethics. She says, almost, and she actually uses these words, she says that euthanasia could be seen as being a duty of people so that they, if they uh, undertake it voluntarily, they can relieve the burden on others. Well, we talk about, uh, if we think about Nazi Germany as being an aberration of human behaviour, forget it. It is alive and well today. The same attitudes because people have forgotten what human beings are, what image they have stamped upon them. And this is the important thing. Interesting enough, just recently, uh, there was, in 2013, there was an act, most people probably don't know about this, an act put forward in the Tasmanian Parliament to bring in uh, what they called uh, assisted, uh, assisted dying. No one ever used the word suicide or euthanasia. They didn't, didn't use those nasty words. They said assisted dying, medically assisted dying, that was called. It was only defeated in the Tasmanian Le Legislative Council by one vote. The vote was, I think, it was 13 to 14. Um, so we got one vote against it. It was the only way it was defeated. So how close it was that in the Tasman state of Tasmania we would have had uh, a legalised uh, assisted dying. No one ever thought about, well, who's going to assist them? What about the doctor who actually gives the needle, the pharmacist who prepares the solution, the, the nurse who makes them ready? What about all these people who are then complicit in the killing of another person? Uh, that was never discussed, Inter interesting in all the debate. We also have, I'm just using here a few examples of where we uh, have obscured the image of man. In Australia, uh, there, look, uh, true statistics, uh, uh, statistics aren't kept uh, faithfully on this particular issue, but only by extrapolating what statistics there are, we can say between 60 and 100,000 babies are killed each year in Australia through abortion. Now this is a great talk about the dialectic, you know, the, the opposing of, of, uh, of different, uh, different factors which brings about a, a contradiction within us. Millions of dollars of taxpayers' money is spent on abortion every year in uh, killing a, up to perhaps 100,000 babies every year. Just down the corridor in the places where these uh, children are killed, just down the corridor, millions of taxpayers' dollars are spent on uh, fertilisation programs. Now, if anyone, I, I, I bid you just think about that for a little while. Just one part of the hospital where you're spending billions, billions of dollars in, in killing children and another part of the hospital is spending billions of dollars in trying to get children um, uh, conceived in the first place. In that same year, in the last year, the last financial year, in us all of Australia, only 203 children were adopted from within Australia. 203, in a population of 23 million. 203 children. Only 46 of these children were from outside the family. In other words, most of the adoptions were of uh, nieces and nephews and, and what have you. And only six of these, only six children in one whole year in Australia were infants who were adopted, were infants, babies. And well, they say infants under the age of five. But only, only six 
and the whole country, while perhaps 100,000 are being killed. There's something wrong with the way we see ourselves and the way we see uh, each other. We could go on and on. I'd, I'd uh, have to uh, extend the time considerably throughout the day if we wanted to list all the uh, ways in which we can see that the image of humans has been obscured, both in their own eyes and their eyes of their fellows. Um, there is also, just by the by, two and a half thousand successful suicides in every year in Australia. Two and a half thousand people kill themselves. Look, this might sound gloomy, particularly uh, for the uh, the week before Christmas when we're to celebrate the Advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. But perhaps that's rather um, opposite, actually, that we are talking about this just before such a, a joyous event. Because there is the third part of this, and we've talked about the image that was created. We talked about the image that's been obscured or blurred. But now we can talk about the image that's restored. And we then go to 2 Corinthians. And uh, this was actually talking, it starts off talking about the people who are living under the, the law of the Old Testament and comparing those to those who are now living under the, under the new uh, liberty of Jesus. And I'll just quote part of it here. It says, but their minds were made, dull. page 1143, if those who want to follow along. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. The veil is only taken away in Christ. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone, whenever, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now I'm talking here about myself. Because remember I said I can only talk for myself because I'm the only person I've ever experienced the last 65 years. I'm the only one I've ever experienced. And I can tell you as a testimony today that this is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is, is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And here's rather a nice promise for us here. In verse uh, 18, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And remember Colossians uh, tells us, the book of Colossians tells us the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It brings us back, does it not here, to the image restored, takes us back to again the creation when the image was first created. That is, us humans were created by God specially, different to all the other um, creatures and things in creation. We were created specially and we were given a special quality. We were made uh, in the image of God. That is, we were able to have a loving relationship with God. And But there's only one way that that can be restored, that image can be restored. And it says it here. That is, uh, whoever turns to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. And then we can be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. We can be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory if we turn to him. So for us who have already turned to Jesus Christ, we are having our image restored. 
And day by day, through prayer, through communing with God through his word, reflecting upon ourselves as well, and thinking about, yes, I'm, I'm made in the image of God. I have to be careful about what I think, what I say, what I do, because I have to be worthy of that great image. See, that's the dialectic here again. You see, but yes, we are proud, we are capable of the most horrendous acts, but also at the same time we are made in the image of God, and therefore we have to be worthy of that image. But we cannot do it by ourselves. We have to turn to Jesus to be able to have that image of God restored in us. And then by the whole power of the Holy Spirit, each day transforming us more and more from glory to glory into that very image of God, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please join me one more time in prayer. Thank you. Almighty God, thank you, Lord, that uh, you've sent your son Jesus Christ. Because without him, Lord God, we will be cut loose and left to drift upon uh, a whole world and life of, of uh, sin and a whole world where our image is distorted and, and, and covered over. But by knowing Jesus Christ in our hearts and surrendering to him our lives and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us, Lord God, you've made it possible for us to have our, the image restored and that we may be bit by bit transformed into the very image, your own very image in which you originally made us. Almighty God, I just pray that you'd help each one of us to live up to this, this great thing that we are made in your image and help us to seek out the Holy Spirit who transforms us in our hearts and for those who don't know the Lord yet to seek him out first of all. Seek out the Lord Jesus and give their hearts and lives to him so that they may be restored once again in the way that you made us in the image of God. Thank you Lord God. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.